0: Continue this morning our, our walk through Second Corinthians. And we're we're approaching the end. These last several chapters of Second Corinthians are are a body of, of very biographical content. That is, Paul is writing from a very, very personal place. And and at issue is his his relationship with the church at Corinth, which with the the majority of the church has gone pretty well, but a minority of the church, and and sort of in in, in a kind of a too much way, the church has, has proven to be vulnerable to a group of of self-proclaimed super-apostles. Sometime after Paul's first season in Corinth, a season that lasted about a year and a half, we'll talk more about that in a a bit, This, this group came possibly or probably from Jerusalem and began to undercut and edit the teaching of the gospel in Corinth. And in so doing, they also assailed the character of the apostle Paul, such that Paul's defense of his gospel is, is interwoven with a defense of his own character in these, in these paragraphs we're looking at now. Paul is evidently not entirely comfortable with the, with the defense of his own, his own self because Paul doesn't consider his own self to be that big a deal. But what is at stake in his beloved church at Corinth is shall we have a gospel of grace as I have lived among you and taught or shall we accept these edits that are coming from this group of self-proclaimed super apostles? These edits which, which by and large seek to inject the gospel with the idea that in order to really know God, what you have to do is, is accept um, the bulk of the Old Testament law. That specific controversy doesn't resonate all that thoroughly here in our 21st century, 21st century predominantly Gentile overwhelmingly predominantly Gentile church. But make no mistake, while it's not the theme at this present moment in this present paragraph, the the issue of shall we have a gospel that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the word of God alone, for the glory of God alone, each of those five alones are still very much fighting words in certain quarters of that which calls itself Christian. And so in a sense, this first century controversy is still very much with us in the 21st century. And the reason that Paul is willing to engage in the defense of, of, the, of the gospel, including himself, is his love for the church at Corinth. The paragraph before us today, I think, very much concerns, himself, concerns itself with that, that matter, the matter of love. So I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll, we'll share a couple of introductory ideas, and then we will dive into the passage together. I'm in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 through 19. I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls." If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. All right. Uh, on, your, on your notes at the very top, we quote a definition pretty often around here of, of, of what love is. And I will be the first to admit that, that the word love gets, gets batted around and played with in, in a lot of, of informal and, and sort of less constructed ways kind of all the time in our conversation. For good or for ill, I love a good chili dog. But that is not the definition of love that is before us here. So, so as, we, as we carve away some of, the, some of the silly and shallow ways that we would use the word, let's get at the heart of the matter here. This is the highest form of love. This is uh, the word in the New Testament. that Some of you have heard the word agape from New Testament Greek. This is love. Love is an unconditional, self-sacrificial commitment to the well-being of another. Love is an unconditional, self-sacrificial commitment to the well-being of another. Now right away, one, one fair, somewhat critical observation of that definition might emerge in your mind and heart, particularly if you are wired very much for emotion. Notice that that definition of love says nothing of emotion, if you love that love will involve you experiencing the whole gamut of emotions love certainly will have emotional ramifications and emotional costs and emotional benefits but those emotions do not get to the heart of the very definition of love If you define love in predominantly emotional terms, then your love will be all over the place. And it certainly will lack endurance. It certainly will lack consistency. I had a friend. Well, I still have this friend, though it's, the heart of our relationship was long ago and several states away, whose, whose wife um, went on the multi-year experience of, of dementia. And during the time that she could no longer flourish outside of full-time care, she was placed in a residence where she could be cared for. And during the course of all that, she, she didn't know who my friend was. And that went on for some time. And because his life permitted it, because he actually could pull this off, I'm not saying this is the standard, that's not the point I'm trying to make, but he went to see her every day, every single day, long after she had any idea who he was. Didn't, she did not remember from day to day that he had come. He was asked, why, why do you keep doing that? She doesn't, even, she doesn't even register that you're there. Why are you doing that? He said, I'm not doing it because of, of what she knows and who she is. I'm doing it because of what I know and who I am because I love her. Now, if his definition of love was based in some kind of emotional mutuality then his behavior was not sane. But if his love for her drove his unconditional, self-sacrificial commitment to her well-being, and he saw that her well-being continued to be elevated by his ongoing presence and attention, so he kept paying the price. Don't you define. Enjoy the emotional states that travel with love or endure the emotional states with travel that travel with love, but do not define love in emotional terms or you won't be good at it. And love is supposed to be our brand. This is not in the notes, but you remember this. First John 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Love and the expression of this sort of love is the most distinctive of our calling cards and identifying characteristics as children of God. Well, if love is unconditional and self-sacrificial, surprise, surprise, the commitment to love is the commitment to pay a sacrificial price. Love is costly stuff. Let's look at it. How had Paul paid a price in love for this congregation about which he cared so profoundly. Roman numeral one, love may pay a price in terms of risking misunderstanding. Now this can be, this can be lightweight and funny in, in close and intimate relationships. Uh, I've mentioned it repeatedly because I, I am and remain quite excited about the reality that Gail and I have been married now uh, for, for two weeks more than uh, 40 years. I do not understand her she surprises me continually and based on her own recurring frustration I don't think she understands me either you 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 want what (laughs) and in that kind of intimate give and take relationship those ongoing misunderstandings can be a source of aggravation I suppose but also a source of Fun, right? Okay, tell me again what you're thinking, because I don't think I'm hearing what you're saying. But in, but in mission settings, in life settings, you risk loving someone, and you're going to risk them missing the point of your love. Look at what's happened here. First, Paul was, was truly humble. He, say, he says to them, I'm, I'm, I'm nothing. He says it in, in verse 11. Paul's not about Making certain I heard someone say, Well, well, real love is understanding and being understood. Well, I disagree. Love risks misunderstanding. The very fact Paul said, You you should have been, you should have been defending me. I ought to have been commended by you. When these super apostles came and tried to edit my teaching and attack my character, it shouldn't have even been possible. They should not have found any on ramp in, in you, my beloved Corinthian church. And it's not that I'm a big, big deal. Paul's theme of his, one of the themes of Paul's ministry is that he didn't see himself as a big deal. But the gospel that he presented, the gospel that he taught, the gospel in which he had discipled them, that was a big deal. He himself was humble. Not only was he humble, he was patient. Verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. Signs and, and mighty works and wonders. By the way, I'll chase this rabbit for a moment. I'm going to pursue it a little bit more, more thoroughly on beyond the notes this week. This, this thing of, of, of to be an apostle. Uh, I'll go ahead and give you a slight spoiler alert because there are those today that throw that that title around for themselves. I am apostle so-and-so, this is apostle so-and-so. Let me give you just a slight spoiler alert for Beyond the Notes, I'll flesh this out. How, how can you tell if someone is an apostle? The easiest way is they died more than 1900 years ago. That's, that's, a, that's a quick test, it's not that hard to apply. They're walking the earth with a heartbeat today. They are not an apostle. See? Now, there are other tests, and this, this verse hints at them, but that one is kind of the easiest. <laughs> he was patient, utmost patience. And he didn't take advantage of the Corinthian church. Elsewhere, Paul teaches, and the New Testament teaches, that it is, it is, not, it is not wrong wrong. It is not inappropriate for those who spend their, their working lives teaching God's Word to make a living by so doing. The, I'm very, very glad the Bible doesn't prohibit that. Um, I, I, I am blessed to be able to devote full-time attention to the, to the teaching of the Word of God and to make a full-time living so doing. That's not wrong or erroneous or sinful. But Paul said, because I knew of particular sensitivities in Corinth, I didn't do that there. If you go back and read the the foundations of the church at Corinth, Paul worked as a leather worker, probably producing awnings. Those those ancient marketplaces, the Agora at Corinth being a great example of this, the the big open marketplace, was lined with, with booths stone stone permanent built like stalls all all around the marketplace if you've been to archaeological Corinth you've seen those they're outstandingly well preserved there and the front of those all were they were big awnings and those awnings were made of, of predominantly leather and they wore out from time to time so there was an ongoing industry when Paul was a tent maker he wasn't making tents for people to go camp in the woods It was those awnings. That that, that was the trade he worked with his own hands while he was in Corinth so that he wouldn't have to depend upon the church to support him. I did not burden you. His forgive me this wrong is, is sarcasm. Forgive me that I didn't take money for my own support out of you. And yet, you misunderstand me. Not only misunderstanding, but, but love may pay a price in, in, in months and miles, months and miles. This is very nuts and bolts. First part of verse 14, here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. Now, I sometimes at the at the end of the day, um, if, if I get word and, and the timing is right and I'm able to get away, uh, I will run by the Gulf Coast Hospital on my way home from work. I, I live right off Daniels, and so I can shoot down plantation. Gulf Coast Hospital is right there before I head out Daniels to head to the house. I, I can go by Gulf Coast Hospital on my way to somewhere else. And it's not that huge a sacrificial commitment to do that. But Corinth, let me, let, me, let me remind you with a, with a map of some of the areas covered in Paul's missionary travels. Um, that, that body of water in the center of the screen is the southern part of the, uh, well, it's actually the entirety of the Aegean Sea. On, on The, the landmass on the right is the tip of modern Turkey, Asia Minor, within which several of Paul's missionary journeys took place. The, the, uh, the box on the left is highlighted there. Corinth is out on the Peloponnesian Peninsula, and it is the southwest corner of Paul's missionary travels. We have no documentation. Until he goes to Rome as a prisoner, Paul never went further than Corinth. And you don't, you don't drop by Corinth on your way to anywhere. Corinth is the remote corner of Paul's missionary travels. And, and other than leaving on a ship, when, he, when he, he arrived the first time on a ship from northern Greece, the second time he either went overland or, or that same ship journey. It's just a long haul to Corinth. And yet we see letter A on your outline. Um, the first time he was in Corinth, that narrative is in Acts 18, one through 17, and I'm not, I'm not going to go there, but if you went there, you would see in verse 11. Acts 18, verse 11, he was there for a year and a half. Uh, he was there for 18 months. I tell my New Testament students, one way to remember Paul's time in Corinth is it's Acts 18, and he was there for 18 months. Just a little mental hook to hang that on. So he spends a year and a half earning his own living in a, in a awning-making enterprise, but teaching, discipling, dealing with, with attempts on his life by the Jews, dealing on opposition uh, from the idolatrous worshipers. There was a huge cult of Apollo at Corinth. In fact, the largest surviving building on the archeological site at Corinth is a very impressive uh, remains of a temple to Apollo. The, the worship of Aphrodite and its horrible sexual immorality was thriving in Corinth. So for 18 months, he worshiped and served uphill, discipled people uphill in Corinth. Then when he left Corinth, he left Corinth, went to Ephesus. And during the the years that he was in Ephesus, word came to him of difficulties in the church at Corinth. So he, he, he wrote a, a letter that would be in between our 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. We don't have that letter. God the Holy Spirit did not preserve it for us. But he also went to Corinth in what is called his painful visit. And I've given you the scriptures that allude to that, that second, otherwise undocumented, painful visit to Corinth. Uh, it's talked about in a couple of scriptures that are there on your outline. Apparently that visit did not go super well. Apparently that visit might have stirred up even more difficulty and controversy. We've seen in 2 Corinthians that that some of his critics said, Paul writes great letters, but he's not all that impressive in person. And that um, conclusion that he's not all that impressive in person may be an insult hurled at this second difficult and painful visit. Now we see that he's planning a third visit. Again, verse 14, he's going to talk about it again off in chapter 13, verse 1. When we get there in 2 Corinthians, he's going to Corinth yet again. You've already seen Corinth is not on your way to anywhere. Corinth is going out of the way. And these journeys done either by sailing vessel or on foot or a combination of the two are not the work of hours, days, or even weeks. They are the work of months. The decision to go to Corinth is the decision to take months of my otherwise productive life and put it on hold for the sake of loving this troubled church. Sometimes, and I'm not going to go far with this, but I want to affirm something. Sometimes, because love is a commitment to someone's well-being, there might be times when you have to withdraw emotionally and even isolate a relationship for the sake of love. Now, if you're married, your covenant is is bigger than simplistic love, so you can't say, "Well, I love I love my spouse so much, I'm going to move out of the house." Be very careful. But in other non-covenantal relationships, love that, that is committed to one's well-being. I mean, I've told this story publicly, it, it no longer is all that painful for me, but I parted ways with an entire church one time because my presence there was no longer contributing to that church's well-being a lot of miles and a lot of years ago sometimes love says I, 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 I have nothing further I can do I will pray for them I will wish them no ill but I can no longer contribute to well being therefore relationally I will withdraw that is at times permissible Paul didn't do it here this is his most troublesome church this church gives him fits like no other church. First and Second Corinthians were, are are difficult to study and they're hard to have written, but he kept on loving and he kept on going. I wouldn't have, because of what was at stake. And if you love and love well, it's going to cost you some miles and some months. There are going to be times when you're going to have to go way out of your way, literally, because of love. Third, love may pay a price in money. This is not complicated. I will not be a burden. Verse 14, middle of the verse. I'm not going to to take any money because my, my, my spiritual children are not obligated to me. Me as their spiritual parent, I'm obligated to them. I will most gladly, verse 15, spend and be spent for your souls. That word spend there, it's talking about money. I will not be better off financially because I have loved you. I will be worse off financially because I have loved you. A literal price to pay for love. But an unconditional self-sacrificial commitment to the well-being of another may cost you. Engagement in missionary enterprise, driven by love, will cost you. Loving your neighbor may cost you. You have an opportunity to invest in your neighbor's well-being. But I I can't because it's going to cost me money. What a bad reason not to. Love. Love. And expect it to cost you. Finally, fourth, love may pay a price in terms of misrepresentation. You know, it's one thing to be misunderstood. It's another to be misrepresented. Misunderstanding can happen between me and you. Misrepresentation is when you take your bad ideas and start spreading them. Misrepresentation is when you you align others to what you say is wrong. Paul was not only misunderstood, he had been misrepresented. You see it in verse, in verse 16. But granting that I myself did not burden you. Hey guys, that's just math. You can't find anybody to say that I took money out of the church because I never did for, you know, for my own support. So even if you give me that, then you immediately, not only do you assign me a bad motive, but that's what you're telling each other. I was crafty, you say. There it is, the storytelling, the misrepresentation. And got the better of you by deceit. You see what happened? Paul said, even if you agree that I didn't do the wrong thing financially, you've made up a motive and stuck it to me. Oh, sure he didn't take anything financially. That's because he's playing the long game. He's after the long con. He's not a minor manipulator. He's a major manipulator. And he's not doing the short-term hit. He's setting us up for something bigger. He's trying to get us by deceit. That was the buzz. And that's not only being misunderstood, that's that's being misrepresented. That's being maligned. Love is risky stuff. Their shared accusation was that he he was seeking to get the better of them by deceit. Their absence of evidence, Paul says, not only did I not do that, but others that I sent to you on my behalf, Titus, and whoever the other brother is in verse 18. And by the way, we have no idea. Lots of fun speculation among Bible trivia people about who is the other brother that traveled with Titus in verse 18. Nobody knows. If God wanted us to know, God have told us. It's okay. Fun to speculate about. But either way, Paul said, even the emissaries that I sent to you, they didn't, they didn't extract support for their own well-being. But you've told yourself fables about the why. Be very, very careful when you write the story in your own head about why somebody is doing what they're doing. Be very careful with that. I've written the story of your why and now I am angry at you because I have figured out your why and I have invested myself emotionally in the emotions I have invented for you, in the motives I have invented for you. Ew. Set up your own internal feedback loop and then get ticked because of it. Not not terribly good behavior, that. When I think of this thing of misunderstanding and paying the price in in travel and wealth and being maligned, misrepresented and misunderstood, I cannot help but think of Jesus, who gave up more than anyone has ever given up, traveled further than anyone has ever uh, traveled, endured more, more trials and misunderstanding on a scale unparalleled because of love. If this morning you have not embraced the expressed love of Jesus, the great tragedy of history is in John chapter 1 where the Bible says he came unto his own. We're on the cusp of the Christmas season. There's already some lights up. Woo, y'all don't waste any time. He came unto his own and his own received him not. What a terrible tragedy that is that Jesus Christ would come into this world, motivated by love, live a sinless life, die a substitutionary death to pay the price for sinners, prove everything he said by rising from the grave and providing a way of salvation that you would not endure forever the wrath of God, which you deserve because of your sin but rather that you would enjoy eternity with him in heaven as one of his children. If you will turn from your sin and follow him by faith, he is the only name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. And If you've not come to Jesus, oh, waste no more time. Turn from your sin and trust him by faith. Do not do not neglect his love. What was was Paul's motive? This this high price that Paul is paying, was it worth it? What was Paul really after? Now, if you've already looked in your notes, that's fine. If you've read ahead one last verse, that's fine. But let me ask you a question that I, I bet many of you can answer. In all of God's dealings with his creation, when you look for the why, The grand unifying why of why God does what he does. What is the first and foremost reason God does what he does? I bet you know it. His own glory. He is constantly and relentlessly in pursuit of his own glory. It is his principal motive. It's why he made the universe wherein you find yourself his own glory absolutely number one with a bullet secondarily what is his motive the good of those who love him our good his glory our good you and i live our lives surrounded by questions of why that we cannot answer in in the detail and scope and scale of our lives why is this why is this why is this and you must get comfortable with the notion that you will not often know But if you zoom back to the long view, you can't always know. Ultimately, the why, his glory, you're good if you love him. And once you see that in Scripture, you'll not unsee it. It's everywhere. Not only in the motives of the living God, but in the motives of those who are his followers. What was Paul's why? We see it in verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that I've been defending myself to you? It is in the sight of God we have been speaking in Christ. My whole relationship with you, dear Corinthian church, the whole price that I have paid, the whole difficulty I have endured, the whole misunderstanding I have risked, it's for God's glory. That's the why. As a footnote, in your marriage, ma'am, sir, your marriage is more for the glory of God than it is for anything going on between the two of you. Lose sight of that and your marriage might be in trouble. Hang on to that and your marriage becomes resilient. The glory of God, the big why. Second, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. The glory of God and the good of others. This is why we love. Love and love well.